So for me, like one of the things about music that I really love and my favorite music, there's always a mystery. You know, there's always some something to try to discover or like a corner to turn or some sort of fog to be lifted or or something. Like there needs to be something mysterious about it. So finding the thing that the person goes like, wait, what was that? Hello, Strong Songs listeners. Kirk here on an off week with a special bonus episode, a conversation with someone I've always loved talking to about music, the wonderful New York-based pianist and composer, Carmen Staff. Carmen and I go back. We went to music school at about the same time, and while we attended different programs, we had some mutual friends, and we always found that whenever we had a chance to chat, we had a lot to talk about. These days, she's a well-known player on the New York scene. She's performed with legends like Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, as well as at Jazz at Lincoln Center. She served as pianist and musical director for Dee Dee Bridgewater, which, if you know who Dee Dee Bridgewater is, that's a very big deal. She's taught at all sorts of prestigious music programs. She has a bunch of her own projects as well. She's just one of those extremely impressive people who I always remember that I know and then I think, oh yeah, I know Carmen. That's pretty cool. I asked her if she might want to come on the show and just chat for an hour, and that's what we did. We got on Zoom and we just sort of talked. Topics ranged from how she approaches ear training and teaching to the perceived inaccessibility of jazz music to her thoughts on the gamification of music and some things that chess and other games have in common with jazz. Right now you are hearing a track from her 2020 trio record, Eye to Eye. It's her take on Paul McCartney's Blackbird, which you can probably hear if you're listening closely. be hearing more of her music throughout the episode. I really recommend checking some of her stuff out once you finish listening to this. Just check out her other projects. She does a ton of stuff. It's all really, really good. Just as a reminder, bonus episodes like this one are made available to all listeners thanks to my supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the creation of Strong Songs and hear more bonus episodes like this one, go to patreon.com slash strong songs and sign up. All right, here's my conversation with pianist Carmen Staff. Carmen Staff, hello. Welcome to Strong Songs. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, Kirk. I'm very glad to be on here and having this conversation with you. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be fun. It's been a while. I feel like we haven't really gotten to talk in in quite some time, though I've of course been aware of the various cool things that you've been doing. But uh, yeah, how's it going? Just in general, with with music and and with everything, creatively teaching all of that. It's yeah, it's going. You know. As I always say, it's it, I'm very grateful for everything that is happening right now um, yeah. in my life that is, you know, music related. And um, it is pretty amazing that, I mean, even before any of this happened with the pandemic, I was so lucky that I got to do music and was making a living doing it. And now with, you know, everything that's going on, the fact that I've managed to still be able to you know, obviously so much is not happening that was going to be happening or whatever, but, um, you know, I'm still getting a chance to both teach virtually and be part of, you know, a lot of the same, um, like the camps and things that I was part of, and then also do a little bit of recording. And, um, and it's also just the time when I've had a chance to really do some things musically and otherwise that I just probably wouldn't have done, you know, wouldn't have had time to do. So it's like almost like we all stepped out of time into a parallel universe and can now explore some alternate versions of our own reality. Um, What is some of those alternate versions of your reality look like? Like, what are you exploring? Well, I'm taking voice lessons, Mm. which is really fun. And I've only just started. So don't ask me to sing anything, but. um, (laughs) Okay. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) But my, well, so this is kind of a a long story that ties into kind of just my musical background, but um, I had this amazing, incredible classical piano teacher when I was young Mm -hmm. and um, she, you know, she's like a musical mother to me. And one of her other students, actually, um, I kind of hadn't been in really great touch with him for a while, but, um, you know, we sort of grew up both in her piano studio and he now is running a music school in LA and also producing and he's also like a film director he's doing all these amazing things oh wow uh, what's his name Joseph Itaya cool and um yeah and he so he just reached out to me kind of out of the blue and said 
hey, would you want to trade some jazz piano, like theory related lessons for, you know, take your pick. Do you want to learn huh. filmmaking? Do you yeah. want to learn production? Do you want to learn singing? Because, you know, he's so he's like a polymath. And, mm-hmm. and I said, well, you know, like I always tell my students to sing and I I sing all the time as a jazz musician, just as part of my process of ear training and everything. And so being able to have a little bit of training at it would be great and super fun. And it has been really great. Nice. What's uh? What have you found so far? It's a whole process. I've talked about it a lot on the show and have a million thoughts on it. But I'm curious, since you just started, what have you made of the process so far? Um, great question. Uh, well, first of all, I, as a piano player, I happen to work with a lot of great singers. Um, I've been really fortunate as an accompanist to work with, um, you know, I like before you know before all the touring stopped i was playing a lot with dd bridgewater and right you're like like, when you say great vocalists you mean like some of the greatest vocalists (laughs) in the world (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's still you know i still kind of have to pinch myself and go like was that real like (laughs) you know yeah that's incredible that you played with dd that's so freaking cool it's yeah i mean she is amazing and um, i hope everybody already knows about her but if they don't and if you're listening to this and you're interested in jazz vocalists you should definitely Mm -hmm. check out dd bridgewater Slick gambling lady And these are the words she said I went down to the St. James Infirmary Saw my poor baby lying there um, But so she's one and then um, many others like both in my own projects and also just as part of people's bands I've just tend to work with vocalists a lot. And I did sing in a choir when I was little. So I think mm-hmm. that I'm, I just kind of, I wouldn't call myself a frustrated vocalist, but I'm mm-hmm. like, I have an affinity for vocalists. And like the first solo I ever learned was Ella Fitzgerald, actually. Oh, which solo? Um, her solo on Take the A Train with Duke Ellington. Soon you will be on so back to your question i think just having that affinity for vocalists and working with them a lot um it's just been really helpful for me to actually have to be in that position of being in the hot seat and going like okay so then what do i actually need to hear and it's really immediately changed my thinking about accompanying myself you know before I was like well I, you know I kind of know like try to stay out of their range and mm-hmm. you know things like that try not to be a half step away from the melody and my piano <laughs> voicings and yeah. things that would mess with the vocalist but now it's like so much more even real to me to, to get to think about like how can I leave the right space right in the right spot for this particular vocalist whoever it is um, as a piano player so that's one thing. And then also just appreciating the phrasing, the brilliance of all of these different vocalists and their mm-hmm. phrasing and the variety. And yet, like how much mastery it takes to be able to phrase, you know, however you do as a vocalist and still be so rhythmically like in the pocket. Like, I, you know, this sounds like something that everyone probably already knows, but just listening to Sarah Vaughn and hearing mm-hmm. how swinging she can be. I've got or you know like betty carter and like how adventuresome she is and i hope you find a Then you will be so happy when I mean, I'm listening to these people in a whole new way now, having to actually imagine doing it. And when I listen back to myself singing, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really not doing like you know like I think I thought that I was kind of phrasing when I would try to sing or Mm -hmm. you know I or I kind of like I I could see the difference between how I thought I sounded 
when I imagined it in my head versus like what I'm actually doing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And there's such, there's just so much more that great vocalists are doing than, than I realized, I think in terms of phrasing and shaping every note. I've always found the the disconnect between an internal instrument and an external instrument so striking with singing. So I always make the joke because someone made it to me and I stole it and then forgot who it was that your first voice lesson would be like going to your first violin lesson and you walk in and they just give you a block of wood and some string and they're like, okay, first you need to build a violin. (laughs) And like we're going to spend a while just learning how to do that because you have to take this instrument that's a part of you that you've been using your whole life but not using in the way that you would as a vocalist and then learn how to navigate it and sort of bend it to your will. Do you, how, how have you found that to be, especially as a piano player, which is just this big instrument that's right there for you all the time compared to something inside of your chest and and throat? Yeah. That's, that's another great question. Um, You know, I've always thought about the piano that it's, it's such an unnatural instrument actually. Um, as a piano player, it feels like we, you know, first of all, humans didn't really evolve to sit down for long periods of time. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, not okay. that great for us. <laughs> and and then, you know, I don't know that much about like anatomy and kind of like the physical aspects, but I know that like it's also not necessarily very natural for us to hold our arms a certain way and mm. play and do this with our fingers like that. I mean, it's, there are of course ways to play more naturally and more loosely. And that's one of the big things that I kind of had been working on these past, you know, decade or something. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to, to find better and better and more, more natural and free ways of playing and relating physically to the instrument. But, um, but it's still, yeah, like you said, it's like this big kind of, machine with a certain type of um it's like preserving the kind of technology that came out of a certain era Mm. and then trying to sort of get your body to work in tandem with that Mm. whereas when your instrument is actually is your body it's i mean i would think there'd be a way to get that to be much more natural in a sense right but but like you said it does take a lot of work and a lot of the ways that i've been moving and breathing and just um, using my body aren't necessarily that efficient or healthy even. And so even not just with learning voice, but like this whole time during the pandemic, I've been really kind of digging in more to, um, well, like, like I've been running regularly because that's one of the only things I can do outside, (laughs) but also just, um, you know, learning more about just the mechanics of movement and, like I had taken a few Alexander lessons um, in grad school and things like that, but um, to really try to start to be more aware. And again, this is probably something that for, for some people it's like very natural, but for me, I've always been really in my head and just the body awareness to know like, okay, this is this muscle and this is what it feels like when it's moving and I need to control it. Like Mm -hmm. I've never gone through that process. You know, I never, did any acting or like, you know, any, anything that would have made me consciously really focus on that. And I think voice is, is doing that. Definitely. Um, What are Alexander lessons just in case people don't know what those are? Oh yeah. So Alexander technique is um, a kind of a a series of practices or awarenesses um, of the way that your body is moving basically. Um, So it's similar to kind of, I guess you could, there's a couple of other different schools of sort of thinking about how we move and, but it's not necessarily about posture. It's more than that. It's like, how do you actually, you know, it's, it's getting your bones in alignment, first mm-hmm. of all. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm not qualified to talk about this. Like I'm not an Alexander, you know, I'm not well, trained, you can, but you can just paraphrase what it is. So people know. Yeah. But to paraphrase, it's, it's a way to, um, to get your alignment more, uh, efficient so that you're not putting as much strain on your muscles and therefore, you know, you hopefully would prevent injuries and you become more loose and free in the way you move. And right. and some of it's kind of counterintuitive or, or goes against what we've kind of been taught about posture, which, you know, it's like, we shouldn't always have like a very rigid straight back. There's actually like a curve in our spine. Right. Mm-hmm. And like all these kinds of things about like head placement and really subtle kind of, kind of things um, that, uh, yeah, it's easy to grow up in the United States, I think, without ever really thinking about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I, it's <laughs> yeah. funny the way that you mentioned plugging yourself into a machine, especially playing piano. 
I'm not much of a piano player, and of course my first instrument was saxophone, which is close. Like, there's a weird symbiosis that the body has to do with the instrument, no matter what the instrument is. And it's always different, depending on a wind instrument or a string instrument or piano. Piano, you're actually kind of the most removed from the instrument in a certain way because you're really just pressing the key in the pedals, I guess. But it's like the button goes and then the whole machine springs into action and makes the sound. And I always envied that in some ways because so much of the tone production just doesn't require extra work, even though I'm sure it also has its own unique challenges. And then when you get to singing, that's about the farthest from a piano as you can get right because it's an entirely internal thing and you're learning how to use your own instrument everyone talks about it as the instrument and I've been struck by in my voice lessons so much of our time is spent on breathing and physical stuff and how many of my weird bad habits the things you're talking about you grow up and like you don't think about the fact that you talk a certain way or you flex certain muscles that don't need to be flexed to do certain things and you stand a certain way and move a certain way and there's no there's nowhere in most people's educations at least in America where they learn about that and then yeah. suddenly you're you're brought face to face with the sort of downsides of all of those bad habits <laughs> with me it's all this tension i have tension in my voice in so many different places where when you hear someone an amazing singer dd's a great example especially great jazz singers who just are so free with their voice and can just do anything it just feels like like total freedom and they're not straining. They're not even really thinking about their technique because also they've mastered the voice so much. But I feel like that mm-hmm. kind of I, I definitely also have a, a new appreciation for that kind of just the the beauty of that sort of effortless physical genius, I guess, is, is a thing mm-hmm. that I would call it. Yeah. And it's something that kind of just going back to what you said about the violin, building your own violin. It's like mm-hmm. we actually um, everyone sings all the time. I mean, some more than others, but you know, everybody sings happy birthday. And Mm -hmm. even if you're not a singer and it it sort of reminds me a little bit of the same kind of thing in relation to like physical movement where Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I've been walking my whole life. Like how can I be walking wrong? But (laughs) there actually (laughs) are like better or worse ways to walk. Yeah. And we don't spend a lot of time learning them. Like we don't learn how to talk. I record, I talk so much now because I, all I do is podcast and learning to sing and then learning to talk. It's really gotten me, reflecting on my speaking voice and how many weird habits I had with it and things that I can hear when I listen back to old recordings of myself podcasting from four or five years ago that now I listen to myself I'm like well I've gotten a little better (laughs) so in five years you know I'll I'll get better still Um, so I want to talk a little bit about science fair so this is a group that you have with uh, Allison Miller I've been listening a lot to your 2018 record she kills everybody on that record kills Um, Really, really cool stuff. So yeah, maybe just talk a little about that group. How did it come together? What have you been working on? What's it like working with Allison, et cetera, et cetera? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, as you said, Allison Miller is like, incredible yeah she's one of the greatest drummers around she can play (laughs) she can play and um and she is she's really an interesting musician because um she grew up kind of in the dc area and was playing you know with a lot of jazz musicians at a pretty young age there um and also was exposed to the music that was happening there at the time which was go-go music and Mm. so she there's this this thing that she has no matter what she's doing which is this really she's really grounded in groove and just rhythmic um like the pocket you know that's Mm -hmm. just a part of her playing and um that resonates so much with me because I feel like that's for me you know people talk about like melody rhythm harmony and to me rhythm is maybe the most important I know it's kind of ridiculous to say like any one of them no, but I mean it but, is though it is it's the most important because you can play wrong notes but if they're grooving you know exactly you're fine. yeah it's like <laughs> that's like the magic special sauce I think that can make the difference between something being you know intellectually like kind of impressive or, or whatever versus like pulling me in like mm-hmm. I'm physically drawn to it you know mm-hmm. and, and going back to that thing about you know the body awareness and like the embodied kind of part of the music and 
a lot of the music that Allison and I play together is either explicitly music that we play for dancers, like we work mm. with dancers, or it is, you know, somehow informed by the idea of dance and groove. And so, so anyway, so I, I knew about Allison before I had, you know, before we actually met, I had heard her play and was a fan and everything, but um, she has this band called Boom Tick Boom that's been, I think it's like 10 years. Mm -hmm. They've celebrated their 10 year anniversary as a band. Um, that's just fantastic. And uh, Myra Melford is a pianist in that band and she, um, or, or was the pianist in the band and she's kind of not always doing all of the gigs now. Um, and so there was this opportunity where Allison needed a piano player for a gig. And she just, it just happened that the bass player, Todd Sikafus, who you probably know. Um, oh yeah, he produced Hadestown. We've never met, but he's great. Yeah, he's fantastic and has this you know, great composer and everything in, yeah, yeah. You know, as well. And um, it, so it just happened that while I was at the Monk Institute in LA, when I was there, you know, doing my grad program, Todd was in town and he came to the Blue Whale, which unfortunately is no longer a mm -hmm. jazz club that is open, but it was this incredible, amazing jazz club in LA that we used to play at. Um, and so anyway, so Todd heard me play there and he, Allison was saying, you know, I need a piano player for this gig. So do you know anyone? And Todd said, well, I heard this piano player and Allison trusted Todd's opinion nice. or his recommendation enough yeah. to to call me up and say hey do you want to come to Iceland with me and play at the Reykjavik Jazz Festival oh you know <laughs> you know <laughs> that's a call everyone likes to get <laughs> yeah and I was kind of like wait well, um well hang on let me think of no no yeah obviously I was like <laughs> You're like ah can you meet my quote I don't know maybe <laughs> right, maybe exactly. I'll get back to you <laughs> exactly no I was like wow yes I definitely do because that <laughs> nice. sounds incredible and like I love you know, her music and her playing. So just from there, it just, we just really clicked musically mm -hmm. and personally and everything. And, um, and so we've been trying to play together as much as possible. I mean, I have to thank Allison because she is, you know, doing a million things at once at all times. She has so many projects. Yeah, she seems like one of those people who's got a like hundred irons in the fire. Yeah. And so she's managed to like, you know, pull me into a bunch of things. And so that I get to be a part of a lot of really cool things that she's involved in. That's um, great. Those are good people so. to know, those musical connections. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I want to talk a little more about that rhythm harmony thing. There's a tune MLW, I'm assuming that's Mary Lou Williams that that's yes, who that is named yes. for. Uh, really killer track on on that record, on the Science Fair record. And it's just the two of you. just like this rhythmic exploration it's so happening you're both really feeling it together and it's clear that that's you know i mean obviously she's a drummer and you're a very percussive rhythmic player so the two of you know like i always explain to people on the show that piano is actually a percussion instrument or at least i think of it mm -hmm. that way you are just hitting strings with hammers it's like a hammered instrument as much as it is a very harmonic instrument too so it sounds it's super rhythmic and yeah, yeah Talk a little more about that, about the relationship between rhythm and harmony. What do you what do you make of that relationship and the sort of primacy of the two and how they may fit together depending on the music? Well, it's that's an interesting question. Um, when you said the primacy of the two, my first instinct was to think, I, I think a lot of people think melody is the most important thing in music or yeah. or a lot of maybe non-musicians relate most to music through, well, first of all, through lyrics oftentimes, yeah. but also through the melody that is being sung or played. But, but really melody is kind of what happens when, when rhythm and harmony meet, right? I so agree with you. I did this whole, sorry, but I did this whole episode that was rhythm plus harmony equals music. And it was a bonus episode. Yeah. Everyone should go listen to that. Um, and I got some interesting emails from people who were like, I'm surprised you didn't start with melody because mm -hmm. I build it down. It was basically a top down way of thinking. Cause I was like, mm -hmm. well, you start with rhythm and then you add, it's like, I think of it as an X and Y axis. There's the, mm -hmm. like rhythm is the, is that X, the bottom axis. And then the Y axis is harmony. And then you like music just 
everything you're doing fits somewhere on that axis. It's like you're moving along it, up and down, and it's like the vertical and the horizontal sort of. And someone was like, well, yeah. but I usually usually teach melody first because melody, mm-hmm. if you just want little kids to like do music, you just get them to sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or something. They sing a melody. But that's the top, right? Like you just said, I totally agree with you anyways, and it's very exciting to hear you say that. So anyways, <laughs> con- please continue. <laughs> melody and then rhythm and harmony. Well, I think that person is not wrong. I mean, I, I teach melody first too, and yes, I relate exactly. to melodies, yes. and, you know, but it's, I think it's more like if you're picking apart kind of what is the, well, you said the X and Y axis, or you could say like the foundation of the house versus yeah. like what it ends up looking like, or, you know, um, harmony is, so both rhythm and harmony are things that occur in nature I might mm. argue that melody is a human invention, although birds and whales and other animals do sing melodies in a way. So it's, but in, in terms of, well, that's a whole philosophical and <laughs> a different conversation. But. Well, but there's a difference, right? It's like if you're taking just the elements of melody, like a single note moving in some sort of pattern, it's a melody. But mm-hmm. melody is a little more than that, right? Like melody yes. involves like phrasing, like it's more mm-hmm. linguistic. It has re- it, yes. repeated ideas and it develops in a way that is more human. So I think that distinction yeah. stands. I, I definitely agree with um, that, with, with the, especially the idea of development and, you know, and telling a story of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, you know, melodies differ across cultures and there's like a western conception of what a melody is like and then there's a lot of other ones and um one of the things i'm sort of going all over the place but it just made me think about um, that's fine that's fine (laughs) this is a it's a huge topic it's basically like what is music is the question (laughs) exactly you know take it wherever you want well there's that's it reminds me of two things that i think are interesting in relation to this um one of them is Allison and I, one of the projects where we work with dancers is this amazing um, collaboration with these, it's um, Indian Katak dancers. Mm. So this, this Katak dance tradition, which is a percussive dance done with, by stomping feet, basically, mm-hmm. um, with bells tied around your ankles. And so there's this amazing kind of musical percussive quality to it. Um, as well as all these beautiful, you know, other things that you're doing with your body. But, um, and there's a lot of storytelling. But so speak involves the Kathak dancers and then tap dancers. And um, Hindustani, so like North Indian classical musicians plus jazz musicians. Oh, man. So Allison and I are, uh, you know, part of the jazz musician component of that. Um, And it's been amazing for us to get to work with both the rhythmic aspect of, you know, the dance and the, it's just amazing that there are these percussive dance traditions all over the world um, and the way that they can interact with each other is, mm-hmm. is so cool. And then, but then also with the, the Indian classical musicians, because harmony, while it exists, it's, it really doesn't have the same kind of, um, you know, complexity that we have, we think of with harmony in Western music right. and um, especially Western classical music and jazz and um the melody is so primary, you know, that, that in that kind of modal music. So it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. And it, I think it actually helped my melodic improvisation a lot to be involved with that project. I think it has kind of affected me in terms of like ways that I think about melody and, and what you can do to develop a melody and, and things like that. Um, so that's one thing that you just made me think about. And then the other is, um, there's this great book called The Harmonic Experience. Do you know oh, about this book? No, I don't, but it sounds, oh, it sounds good. I highly recommend it. It's mm-hmm. by this this guy named W.A. Matthew, spelled like the French way. Okay. Um, M-A-T-H-I-E-U, I think. That sounds right. Um, and he basically, it's this incredible book where he makes the connection between harmony and rhythm, just sort of the way you were talking about a little bit, but he he starts you kind of from the very beginning of like, this is the overtone series, or this is the harmonic series. This is how overtones work. Um, and you're uh, dealing in just intonation. So this is like a whole mm-hmm. other topic. I don't know if you've talked about tuning systems much. I have on the talked show, about overtones. Usually with regards to saxophone, yeah. someone will write in and be like, what's Michael Brecker doing on this? I'm like, well, those are overtones. <laughs> Here's what the overtone series is. Or guitar overtones, too, like how people will get those squeals and those sounds. So he says, basically, this is what happens if you either blow air through a tube or mm-hmm. um, 
you know, make a string move by pulling a bow across it or right. plucking it or whatever, um, or, or sing a note with your right. voice. Put and, air across um, your vocal cords. Yeah, exactly. And, and these are the mathematically sort of derived or the, the way that you can understand the different pitches that are also going to resonate because, you know, mm-hmm. if the string is resonating, vibrating at a certain speed, it's also going to be vibrating at half that speed and, you know, and so on. And so the, the overtone series is based on math and it occurs in nature. This is why you hear electrical hum and, mm-hmm. you know, all these, you can, you can hear it just on your own. If you just kind of, um, play the lowest note on the piano and just stop and listen you'll actually mm-hmm. hear all these other notes in there yeah i always show people the thing where you can press down the other keys and press just the low note and then the upper keys mm-hmm. ring it's always a fun yeah. way to demonstrate it yeah and there's like so much cool interesting physics that you can get into with mm-hmm. all of this um especially i've i went down this rabbit hole thinking about octaves and why we perceive mm-hmm. octaves as being the same note even though they're not and so kind of what right. is special about them and that we could talk for hours about that, but um, but anyway, so in the, in his book, Matthew kind of takes you through um, deriving a scale based on these these overtones, which are these kind of natural intervals. But the problem is um, the tuning doesn't necessarily allow for playing chromatically, right? So eventually, you have to you kind of get to this point where we decide to use equal temperament, where we're going to sort of adjust the natural mathematical relationships just a little bit so that we can have a fifth basically the same you know across Mm -hmm. um anywhere you know any key um so that's like another whole whole story but the relationships between let's say the first and the second um harmonic partials so the first one is like let's say that's your fundamental and then the second going to be an octave higher that is mathematically a two to one relationship. So like if you have a 440 a, and then you go an octave higher, it's 880. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I don't want to get into too much of math, but um, (laughs) that two to one relationship could be expressed as a rhythm as well. Right. Because if you Uh had a vibration that was two times faster, you could say, you know, one hand is quarter notes, the other hand Mm -hmm. is eighth notes. Let's say Mm -hmm. that would be a two to one rhythm. That's interesting. That's a cool way of thinking of it that isn't really totally how I've always thought of it, since I tend to kind of separate them since explaining them separately is kind mm-hmm. of easier. But that is very true, that frequency is occurring over time, right? So you're, exactly, the yeah. time is still there. You're just It's kind of a different way of thinking of the subdivision of time, but they do both involve time. And you can't have harmony without time entirely yeah. because the frequency, like the, the frequency itself implies time. This is uh, yeah. this is very nerdy, but cool. Yeah, I've I, I've been getting more <laughs> yeah. questions about tuning. Like a lot of people using four thirty two. I've been thinking about tuning to four thirty two just for a recording I'm making or something, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everyone, a lot of people I trust are like, it really sounds better. Like it just is a better yeah. tuning. And then of course the equal temperament debate, which is has always felt esoteric to me, but now feels a little bit more, a little bit more practical. I'm I want to ask you about teaching a bit. This sort of relates since we're getting pretty, we're getting pretty academic or it's pretty esoteric. <laughs> so you teach some yeah. as well, and you've been teaching online. And you've been teaching jazz at a lot. You've taught jazz at a lot of places. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious about your approach to teaching jazz in general. How do you think of it? Like, what is the most important thing to teach people when you're just starting to teach them about jazz? I'm assuming you're teaching fairly high level stuff mostly, but like, what do you, what is the most important thing that you seek to impart to students? Um, ear training really to Mm. me, I think ear training is, um, the most important thing because it's all about listening, right? Like it's all about using your ears and also like developing your inner ear. And I would say sort of ear training, I think of it as a two way street. So, there's um, taking what's already internalized. Like, let's say you you really know the melody of Happy Birthday. Like, you you could sing it. You could try to find it on the piano, and you'll know if you make a mistake. If you right. you know don't go Happy Birthday. If you go mm-hmm. Happy Birthday, you'll know that's wrong. Well, that's right? not it. I gotta find it. It's a little higher than that. Right, exactly. Right. It's a little higher. So you take some vocabulary that you know super well. You hear that inside of your head, or you sing it because you can't really sing something that you're not hearing or vice versa. You could say like, um, if you singing, it is a way to find out if you're actually really hearing it Mm -hmm. or not. And, um, and so then you try to find it on your instrument, right? So, um, 
that's taking something that you know very well internally and that you hear and that is like a part of your inner vocabulary, if not technically developed yet on your instrument, um, but it's in your ear. And then the other direction would be start trying to be able to hear things that you aren't currently hearing. That's like learning a new word when you're learning a foreign language or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, like, oh, I don't, okay, so what is this chord? What, how does it work? It sounds strange. Let me play it on the piano and try to sing through. Okay, I see. So that's like a minor third here. And then this is another minor third. Interesting. Right. So mm -hmm. that's, that's like putting more nourishment or more new kinds of sounds into your ear and you can use your instrument to do that because there's a lot of things you can play on the instrument that you can't necessarily hear, right? So I think a lot about that, like that specific process is such a big part of it is sitting at the piano and hearing a thing. And a lot of times I'm trying to find like, okay, I can tell this is like an altered chord or something, but I'm not totally sure what's that internal note. It's so about that process of like you hear it and you hit pause and then immediately sing it. And I have to sing yes. it first. And then it's like, I've got it. Like you've kind of yeah. snagged the sort of thread that's floating in the air. And then if you can keep singing it, I'll have to sit there on the piano for a while and find it. Yeah. I would imagine that for some people that process gets faster and faster and faster. It does. Yeah. Um, how, fa how fast is it for you? Like how quick is it between hearing something and being able to find it, especially given how much you play and, and how uh, proficient you are on the piano? I think that it depends on how similar the thing is to um, things that I've heard in the past. So mm -hmm. like, it's almost like you could imagine different probabilities. Like if it's a C major triad, I've heard that so many times that, <laughs> right. you know, if it's a major triad, I'll probably know immediately. But if it's like some weird combination of notes, you know, it's also like the more notes that are involved in a chord sure. or a sound, the harder it gets. And if it's something that, you know, is very rarely used, I'll probably be less likely to get it. Um, one thing that makes it a little bit different for me is that I, on the piano at least, I have perfect pitch. So Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's not perfect, perfect pitch in the sense of um, being able to say like, oh, this is, you know, a few cents sharp or whatever. Um, it's just that, I, and I, it's very strange, but I think it's just from playing piano so much from when I was so little that the sounds of the notes have their own kind of colors or qualities to me. And so I can hear a note and say like, it's an A natural. That's the sound of an A natural. Um, and, but that gets a little funny because sometimes people, well, first of all, there are recordings that, you know, are old recordings. And so if you transcribe it at the piano, it'll sound like it's in B major, but then I'm hearing it and going like, that's the way a B flat sounds. You know? Oh, that's so interesting. So you can actually tell there are times where I run into that with Beatles recordings where mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether the instruments were tuned differently or whether the recording was just slowed down or sped up. That's very mm -hmm. cool mm -hmm. that you can tell just by listening to the quality of the sound of the piano note. Sometimes, sometimes I can. Um, so it's, but it's interesting though, because it's like, well, actually, no, I would say maybe always I can on piano, but then on other instruments, I sometimes can or mm. not. Um, but it, I think more recently though, it's, it's strange, but I'm starting to feel like it's, I'm allowing for a wider range of pitches or of, of notes to be considered the same note. Like I've been listening to a lot of music where like someone is playing what you might consider sharp or flat, you know, horn player or something, but they're using it kind of deliberately to create another option for the root of the chord or the tonic or sure. if that makes sense I, it's very strange to no words. yeah i mean it's it's kind of the microtonal thing that's become fairly trendy even though mm -hmm. like i don't mm -hmm. love that term only because it just feels like a way of making something that's really more like what you described it's just mm -hmm. yeah pitches aren't divided into these 12 notes to begin with like the 12 note yeah. octave is sort of an invention that's fairly recent and like microtonal is just a fancy way of saying playing outside of that but it's like what you're talking about like if if everyone can hear it and everyone's sort of in agreement and it's being done deliberately with some purpose it isn't just playing sharp you're not just kind of playing out of yeah. tune you're trying to get a certain sound yeah which might be a lot more a lot fuller of a sound you know mm -hmm. to have all those different types of you know d's or whatever it is <laughs> right yeah, yeah i've been listening to this band uh king gizzard and the lizard wizard they're an australian band that yeah <laughs> amazing sure. name and they do all this microtonal stuff they have guitars they have instruments cool. that they've redesigned to be 
microtonal like guitars that are way outside of the 12 tone scale and then everything they do kind of tunes up that way and it's really cool like it really does especially it almost works well because it's in contrast to almost everything i've ever listened to like it it sticks out to me more and feels more expressive and interesting when they're just like it's like "Mm, okay i don't know exactly what that (laughs) is it's basically you know whatever an a minor scale but you just went up an octave and now you're in you know h minor or whatever like yeah exactly (laughs) and it uh and it's cool it's a cool effect because i'm so used to the other thing That's cool, the way that you describe, the way that you hear pitches. I think a lot, just based on questions I get and what people hear about, I think there's almost an over-focus on people who have perfect pitch and on the idea of like absolute pitch and total musical recall and like these kind of things that you can't really learn as an adult, you know, that because yeah. they're it's an amazing thing to think about and a really interesting kind of uh, imaginative exercise to be like, well, what would it be like to just hear a pitch, even though there's such a process, there's such a gradient for what your ears can hear and how you yeah. can develop that relationship between you know, the notes in the air and the notes in your head and the notes that your fingers are playing. And I wonder sometimes about all the way on the one end, there's just this imagined person who can like see everything, you know, the Mozart or whatever, mm-hmm. or your Jacob Colliers, like people who just have like freak, freaky brains that can do amazing things. And then on the, on the other hand, there's someone who's never really thought about it before. Um, I'm guessing you work with people kind of in the middle. Yeah. Where do you yeah. start with someone though, when you're building up that relationship? Like, what do you, what do you work with first or where, how do you come at I think it? That's a great question. Um, it depends on the student, I think, because, sure. you know, you always want to, um, find the thing that is exciting and feels. So for me, like one of the things about music that I really love and my favorite music, there's always a mystery, you know, there's always some, something to try to discover or like a corner to turn or some sort of fog to be lifted or, or something like there needs to be something mysterious about it. So finding the thing that the person goes like, wait, what was that? Like, hold on, wait a second. This is making me see things differently or hear things differently. And that might be different for different people, you know, but um, I think even for someone who like, again, I think a lot of the time with ear training, I would just start with like, let's find a song that you know, because you've sung it a million times or heard it a million times. And it's totally fine to not know what that translates to in terms of like intervals or the names of the notes or anything like that. Um, We're just going to sort of build on. So if it's happy birthday, then it's like, okay, start on any note on the piano, try to play happy birthday. And we'll just use your ear first and then we can go through and analyze like, okay, so what key did we actually play it in? And then discover that happy birthday actually starts on the fifth of the key, not Mm -hmm. the root, you know, not the tonic and like go from there and say like, Oh, okay. There's actually an octave in there. And then there's a triad, you know, major triad. And and then to start to label it with these, you know, it's almost like math. Like Mm -hmm. there are these things, well, that's a no other debate about math right like does math actually exist or is it just like but there are these things that are in this nature is the part of the podcast where we answer the question does math exist <laughs> right well you know i think that no no I, right I, I get what you're saying believe that's a debate in math like sure. is math a real thing out there or mm-hmm. is it a thing that humans use and so so all these things with like scales that have names and intervals and all that stuff is like a human approximation of physical things that happen in nature and so nobody should feel like they are supposed to know any of it or like it wouldn't necessarily be natural to be like, yeah, I can hear this many cents of this or that or whatever mm-hmm. any more than it, than somebody having like a Pantone memorized, if that's the term I'm looking for, like the color wheel where it's like, this color is exactly this. And this is, I mean, that would probably be really helpful for a painter, but plenty of people paint who don't have that. Right. It's a helpful framework if you need it, if you're trying to make sense of the full sonic or visual spectrum, but it is not the truth in any meaningful way outside of just the fact that a lot of people, not even everybody, but some number of people have decided that it is. 
So I want to ask about teaching jazz a little bit, or just about jazz. I've increasingly felt like there's a sort of a peak that you climb as a jazz player and as a jazz listener. And the higher you go, the less accessible the music can feel. I get that not all music is for everyone, but the more I've done this show, the more I've like become aware of how hard it can be at times to let people into jazz. A lot of people find jazz to be inaccessible and just something they're like, I don't know, it's just weird. It's that jazz stuff, like it's for other people, it's not for me. Even though there's so much there, if people can just kind of get in the door. What are your thoughts on that and how do you how do you help people in? Or do you help people in? Or does it not matter? Should it, should all music doesn't have to be for everyone? What do you think? That's, um, I mean, that is kind of the question really yeah. for jazz musicians. And I was going to say right now, but I think it actually probably to an extent always has been. There's mm-hmm. always been this tension between music that is for listeners and dancers and kind of meant to be accessible and popular versus music that is really in some ways, almost more like research, right? Like scientific research and Hmm. in a way kind of going like, well, what are the possible ways that I could get through this chord progression? Like what are the inherent interesting pathways in this? Or how could I write a melody that doesn't sound like it's either major or minor? You know, like like researching these same kinds of questions that, you know, scientists or mathematicians would do. That's great. (laughs) Science fair. Hey. (laughs) Yeah. Science fair. Well, that is kind of part of what the, Uh, what we meant by that name is that we're, we think of it as kind of a laboratory for us to look into things and not just about our relationship to each other, but also just our relationship to the tradition and history. And I think about this all the time because it almost feels like I wake up one day and I go, ah, all this modern jazz is just complicated for no reason. (laughs) And it's, you know, like, I really just want to play music that just feels good, that grooves and a melody that I can sing. And, you know, I mean, my favorite band growing up was the Beatles. And Mm -hmm. actually, the Beatles are pretty apropos because they kind of also did both things, right? Yeah, they kind of became a a research. um, They started out as a as a stage thing, and then became a a more of a research organization. (laughs) Yeah, and 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 there are people who actually managed to kind of do both things Mm -hmm. throughout their career. Like Duke Ellington is a great example of someone who, you know, he both wrote like these incredibly popular, wildly popular songs that are very accessible and loved by a lot of people, but he also found new sounds and experimented and did all these things that were really sort of avant-garde kind of cutting edge Mm -hmm. um in different ways and um so i don't think the answer necessarily has to stay the same throughout anyone's career but um i think like one piece of the answer for me at least is just to be really honest and authentic in terms of what I like, like the music that I am enjoying and mm. that I want to do something that I, that makes me excited because if it sparks that passion in me or that, you know, the thrill of, of the mystery or the, whatever it is, if there's something about it that I find exciting, then hopefully that'll translate because, you know, as humans, we tend to often have a lot of the similar kinds of emotions to each other or, or conundrums or whatever it is that, you know, the music is about hopefully will resonate my teacher, Danilo Perez, I remember saying him saying, life is not about music. Music is about life. You know, like that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's very Zen, but it's true. No, no, it's, it's, and, it's great. It's, it's cool. It's the kind of thing that someone like Danilo Perez would say. <laughs> yeah. And he's right. At least for yeah. me, you know, it's like, yeah, all the chords and the different types of rhythms and all that stuff is, it's all really cool. And it all feels like, kind of there's a game quality to it you know Mm. that can be kind of fun like doing sudoku it's like almost similar like but the thing that actually is underlying all of it isn't about music at all and it's you know it's not about any of the particulars of what the art form is you know the the nuts and bolts of it it's something else right it's like the human experience and like how we relate to each other and so going back to the question yeah i think i think my answer is to try to just to really enjoy what I'm doing, which feels kind of counterintuitive because that could be seen as selfish. You know, I'm just thinking about my own joy in, in the music. But on the other hand, it's very hard sometimes to do something because you think other people are going to like it. If you're not really excited about it, it's not, you know, it's, it, it's actually not that easy 
to write a great melody or a really catchy, you know, groove or whatever. So I think you kind of have to be excited about that if that's what you're doing too, mm -hmm. you know? And, and then the last thing I'll say is just, um, I recently started playing chess and got really excited about it because I watched the Queen's Gambit and, <laughs> and as did you know, we all. <laughs> yeah. As did we all. And, and this is like, this is so funny because it's such a, like sort of a cliche, but I mean, it was the first time I actually thought like, Oh, chess is like a game. It could be fun. Like I like playing, you know, I, I used to play whatever those games are on your phone, like, Mm -hmm. um bejeweled or whatever like yeah. you know or or like um 2048 all that kind of stuff and like i suddenly realized oh, yeah i could play chess like it's fine there's online there's chess.com i can just start learning and it's really fun and i'm getting really into it and that's making me excited about learning about the history of it and mm -hmm. you know checking out what everyone's doing and in a way it's similar to i mean it's, it's chess so it's not the same as football but um if you don't know the rules of a game, it's not that fun to watch it being played. But once you actually do it yourself a little bit, um, it becomes way more fun. And I think a lot of people who are big fans of like baseball or football or whatever, and like to watch teams and root for teams have actually played the game. They actually have a sense of like, what, you know, what is the batter trying to do when they go up to home plate? Oh, okay. They're trying to hit the ball with the bat. And then what do they do? Oh, they run. Okay. Because that'll get them points. And okay. So here's the strategy. And I think with jazz, a lot of people just don't even know that much. Like they mm -hmm. don't have a sense of what improvisation is or what it is to like play over the same form over and over again and, and do variations over that cycle of chords or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, even this sort of like basic sense, it just is not something that people have the tools to really comprehend. And so they don't feel invited in, I think, by the music, partly because of that. It would be like, you know, going and watching a football game, never having really either played or even heard someone explain what the, the goal of yeah. football is, you know, what it, how it works. And so I think like, I think part of it is really just the exposure and musicians being willing to kind of talk about their process and and even just the basics, like I have so many people ask me still, or I used to when I was playing concerts, like come up and say like, what, so what exactly, can you show me the music? Like, what are you looking at there? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so how does it work? Like, let's see, how do you improvise on that then? And I think it's not, it's not wrong that the more you know about the music and the more you actually are participating in it, because you're actually a musician, the more complex music you start to appreciate and, mm -hmm. you know, want to listen to and make you know i think that makes perfect sense actually because it's it's like the more you know the more you want to know more mm -hmm. about what's going on i think that doing it yourself is such a big part of it right and with football i think that one of the reasons that people can really enjoy football is because they can play madden like people can just yeah. get a playstation and play madden and you get to be the coach of a football team and play this like, <laughs> super accurate football simulation so maybe the solution is Electronic Arts just needs to make, you know, a jazz, a video, jazz game. video game. You know, it's so funny that you say that because I always thought like bands should have that, you know, that thing when you're watching like a football game or whatever, and they, they have the like little video of the guy standing there with his arms crossed and it's got his stats or like some facts about yeah, him or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's kind of like, you know, kind of <laughs> just mugging for the camera. I yeah. always think that it should be like that with jazz musicians where it's like, you know, Michael Mayo, like here's this, you know, from Los Angeles and he's it's like it's, it's like 0. 0.82 over giant steps or whatever right, like that's right, his, right. you know his average on getting the right changes on or whatever like I mean it's ridiculous but I feel like there increasingly is that only in that there's so much more awareness of this kind of stuff online and with just like slightly younger generation than us like there is more discussion of sort of yeah you know various jazz musicians who are big on YouTube and Instagram where they have like a fandom that actually really almost does that like has stat books <laughs> on oh well, they just did this like 17-8 <laughs> you know reinterpretation of giant steps and like can you do that and then every Everyone will reference right. it in the YouTube comments of some other video and it <laughs> almost becomes right. a thing. Like, it's cool to see that, um, I think, happening more and more. And, you know, I, I don't even think a jazz video game would actually work, though more and more. I mean, there are a lot of games that have a lot in common with jazz. Um, it's yeah. I've always I, my way of thinking of it. And I think it was this was the reason I was drawn to for writing about them is that they both involve authored spaces that are created for free play within a series of restrictions. Like they're mm. like a jazz tune and a video game 
play space can be very, very similar on a really zoomed out level, just because mm-hmm. they, you create them and it is a framework like a head chart or whatever, a series of chords. And then it's like, let's see what people do with it. And then the yeah. fun of it is just kind of that you get to play along and people play video games like and everyone pretty much yeah. now knows how to play a video game. And that's not actually yeah. that different than, you know playing like i love you for sentimental reasons like it's like it's not right like they're kind of a similar thing like like playing a solo is sort of the same feeling it's just a different series of parameters and restrictions that you've learned and a different vocabulary of play and and same thing with chess too i mean it's like this is how the pieces move this is the object of the game um let's see what happens right, you know it's right. like the number of possible chess games is like far greater than the number of atoms in the universe so it's really improvisatory as well and that's Another reason I, I really, I think I was kind of like, oh, wait, yeah, this is really fun. I get to learn another space. But I think, like, I just want to go back to the, um, when we were talking about the the jazz video game and the idea of the, like, how would you score it, right? And you were kind of starting to say, to talk about that there's, there is kind of this large online community now, or, I mean, relatively large, it's yeah. still jazz, so, <laughs> but um, larger than before. Yeah. And um, this community of people who are trying to kind of almost do that, like compare stats and, mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of the problem though, right? Because it's mm-hmm. not really about making all the changes. I mean, yeah, that's, that's great. And like giant steps is a really fun challenge for that. And it's, it's as far as jazz tunes go, it's probably one that's more like playing a video game because you're, mm-hmm. you know, you could, you could mm-hmm. sort of make like the um, guitar hero version where you try to right. catch all of the changes, but, um, you know, it's like really what, how can you compare? It's just, people are so individualistic and the beauty. And, and another, another thing about it is the development over a long period of time, like hearing Sonny Rollins take like so many courses where he mm-hmm. takes a motive and develops it and like just creating this long story. Um, how do you really, you know, how do you score something that's about such kind of intangible things a lot of right. the time um that's a challenge it's, there's like a re- there's a reductiveness that can happen with those sorts of game systems where yes. you become more and more focused on just this specific thing until you're down to you know the fire and the fury guitar hero expert mode no mistakes right. you know and it's just like right. a person just basically being a robot and following this thing 100 percent to the letter and it's like okay but that is literally the opposite of Sonny Rollins soloing on the bridge right (laughs) it's the opposite of music actually right it's just (laughs) not even music and I had this thing with man with Rock Band and those games uh, Rock Band Guitar Hero I find those games fascinating I think they're really cool and Rock Band actually was why I learned to play the actual drums which now I play a lot and practice a lot and love playing drums but I hate playing Rock Band drums now even though it was my (laughs) way in just because it Uh gave me the basic like foot hand coordination of like the kick drum yeah. and stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. And then I had to sub on drums with a student ensemble. Cause the mm-hmm. kid was out and it was like, you know, my high school. So they were playing really simple stuff. And I just like, Oh, I can play. And I was like, Oh, like my right foot is suddenly able to do things. It wasn't able to do uh-huh. before. Maybe I'm going to learn drums <laughs> finally. And then I did. And it increasingly, it made me realize that, oh, this kind of is the opposite of music in so many ways. Like, I hate <laughs> playing to this really restrictive, like, pattern that doesn't actually match up with what the drummer's doing sometimes. And also doesn't give me any freedom to, like, play a different fill here or feel this one thing differently yeah. or experiment or, like, in any way really meaningfully interact with the band. It's, like, really useful on one level because people can learn what the parts are and how they fit in. Like, playing Paul McCartney's bass lines in the Beatles rock band, I think, is an amazing thing for people to do because it gives you this appreciation for how compositional and melodic he is but it's also like it's not music at all and going too far in that direction it kind of diminishes everything it reduces it 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 removes all the humanity from it when actually the interesting the more interesting comparisons begin to happen if you go the other direction into the more conceptual realm of just pure sort of improvisation and restriction and like expression like minecraft is more like jazz (laughs) than rock band is you know a game that's just free expression where you can do anything is actually closer to that kind of music than something that is like expressly supposed to be you know like you said the giant steps of like the the giant steps in quotes like the way that people think of giant steps of video games right yeah that's a really interesting point that you know on the surface level something might be kind of replicating the experience of playing the music but that 
is by definition kind of almost the opposite thing right. <laughs> of you know to to improvising this is a whole a whole can of worms yeah. we could go on forever but um yeah uh, i feel like that's that's tantalizing enough we'll do a video game music podcast at some point down the road we'll have to we return to this yeah. but um the last question i want to ask you before before we wrap up is uh three albums i always ask people for three albums that people should listen to of course People should also listen to Science Fair, but I'm guessing that you brought in, you brought in three. You somehow narrowed it down. So uh, yeah, what are three albums that people should listen to? Oh, it's tough to narrow it down. That's for sure. Um, well, well. So Mary Lou Williams already came up as a as a person who is an influence on me. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know about her, she was this. Um, she had a very long career. So she basically started out as a jazz pianist and an arranger. Um, and I think her her very first recording, I want to say, was um, it might have been the early '30s. I'm not sure exactly when she first started recording, but she was, you know, she was working as an arranger. She was like a teenager when yeah. she went on the road, um, and then she apparently recorded one of the very first, if not the first, jazz piano trio recordings, mm-hmm. um, and then went on to influence Thelonious Monk and all, you know, the bebop musicians. She they would like go over to her apartment and learn harmony and all this stuff. So. Anyway, she and then she went on and on and had this long career where she wrote vocal music and mm-hmm. et cetera. So one of the albums of hers that I really like is called Zoning. And if people don't know it, Zoning, like, you know, for buildings. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 1974, and she was incorporating a lot of the kind of, you know, funky kind of groove and that kind of like electric bass and sounds that were happening then. there's also like this amazing kind of free jazz duet version of her tune a fungus among us with this um this very kind of unknown classical pianist named zita carno who's also a baseball person but that's a another <laughs> trivia thing but anyway so one my, my album number one is mary Lou williams zoning um and then i guess i mean this is this is sad but um I can't not mention that Chick Corea just passed away. Yeah. Um, and we just found out about it yesterday, but he passed on, on the ninth, which is my birthday actually. Oh, and yeah. Um, apparently, he, yeah, we, I mean, nobody knew that he was even sick, I think, or most people. Yeah. Did. I had no idea. Yeah. It was very, very fast. And so I have to say that he was one of my favorite musicians, huge influence. I think, probably on pretty much everyone, but um, certainly for me as a pianist, you know, in high school, I just, a record that I completely just wore out was light as a feather. So if people Mm. haven't checked that out, um, that is, you know, classic chick like compositions really kind of, he actually walks that line between like very singable melodies, but harmony that moves all around is Mm -hmm. actually pretty difficult to play. You know, a lot of the tunes on that album People probably have heard Spain, maybe know the tune Spain, but mm-hmm. but check out you know the other things on it. Um, so Chick Corea. And, and his band, Return to Forever, there were all these different incarnations of it. Yeah. And so you can check out his, like, f- more fusion Return to Forever and with Aldi Miola. And then, I do. I hear a lot of him in your playing. So you're carrying on the tradition in well, a lot of ways. Thank you. I mean, there, I, I hope that there is. I mean, I want there to be. <laughs> um, and then the last person I'll mention is um, Fela Kuti, because he is someone who has actually literally gotten me through like his music has gotten me through this past year. I run in the park in Prospect Park near my house. And I always listen to Fela when I'm running because it's just, it's music that is incredibly funky. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I listen to like, I shuffle all the different playlists I can, but, but one of the records of his is, is Gentleman from 1973.
Um, so there's kind of a time period I'm in 70s, here. Man. <laughs> 70s, man. In the 70s, yeah. The 70s were a great decade. I've been listening to a lot of 70s stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, but but so this record, Gentlemen, it's like the funkiest. Just, I mean, if you'll hear these bass lines come in and just like, mm. it's like this moment where I'm just like the sky opens up and you just <laughs> i can't like I, you know it's i can't even express in words how deep and like heavy and yet just beautiful these bass lines are and the way it all fits together with the the percussion and then and then on top of all of that there's this political um message obviously there's the you know what he was doing in the music politically and socially um what was very brave and like very relevant now i think still so um that's the last record I'll mention, Fela Kuti, Gentleman. Nice. Well, I'll link all of those in the show notes and people should listen to them. I haven't heard that one, so I'm looking forward to listening to it. It's really great. Carmen Staff, thanks so much for coming on Strong Songs and good luck with, with all of your music and everything else. Thank you, Kirk. Well, I hope we can continue all these conversations because I feel like <laughs> it's been so much fun and we just have many more hours of <laughs> things to talk about, it seems. I feel you. I'm sure that we will. All right. Take care. Take care. And that'll do it for my conversation with pianist Kerman Staff. You can find links to her music down in the show notes, along with the other music that we talked about on this episode. Thank you so much to my patrons for making it possible for me to dedicate extra time to the show to bonus episodes like this one. You can expect more interview episodes like this, this year than last. You, yes you, can become a patron of Strong Songs by visiting patreon.com slash strongsongs. Becoming a patron will get you access to some behind-the-scenes blog posts and videos, and you'll also get to join the growing community of Strong Songs patrons, music lovers who love to listen deeply. Alright, thanks for listening, and thanks to Carmen for taking the time to come on the show. I will see all of you next week for another regular episode of Strong Songs. Strong Songs